The lectionary readings and the weekly collects, um, the prayers that are in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, one of which you heard this morning as we uh, concluded our call to worship, they focus us on the central theme of Epiphany, and it is a theme that I sense the Spirit is directing our focus to for 2018. And it is a theme of bringing the light of God to people who are walking in darkness. And we're convinced that when light shines in the darkness, darkness cannot overcome it. We're convinced that that life of God is the light of men and women all over the world. And that's why I have directed us to a verse for 2018 that would be our focus. And if you haven't properly underlined it, as I pointed out last week in your Bible, not using a blasphemous yellow highlighter, but using a nice clean line in your Bible or highlighting in your app, Acts 4.20 says, and if you haven't memorized it, I'd invite you to do this with me, we cannot keep, Peter says, from speaking about what we have seen and heard. My prayer is that that verse will be like a stone in your shoe. It will be a bee in your bonnet, as I have been prone to say, like I'm 94 years old. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with being 94 years old. If you're 94, please praise God. Exactly. Somebody, thank God for that. (laughs) Um, this This is the last in a series of messages that I've entitled Irrepressible. This idea that like Peter and, John, Peter and John in the text of Acts 40, there's an irrepressible message inside of us, something that doesn't have to be conjured up, something that's not a shtick, something that's not a spiel or any other shh you could think of. It's not that. It's that we're so full of the life of the Spirit. We're so full of the joy that comes like these rivers of water that can't be contained, that we can't help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. I think one of the reasons that this message is always relevant on some level is that whether it's due to the busyness of life or whether it's just the dysfunction of Christian witness as we've known it, many of us, me, haven't exactly been these fishers of men and women. Many of us have struggled to embody and to live out Jesus' call in Acts 1 to be witnesses to him. Many of us, thank God, I mean literally thank God, have understood rightly that our lifestyle is an essential and integral component of our witness. People are not going to be inclined to believe what we have to say if there's a huge gap between that and the way we live. This we know. This is true. If anything, statistics have shown that the unchurched do not like the church because they are convinced it's full of hypocrites. And this is why the lifestyle of the believer matters so much. It is a shame. It is a scar on the body of Christ that we divorce at the same rates as people who don't have Jesus. It is a shame that we are engaged in adultery. We are engaged in compulsive gambling. We are engaged in physical violence as much as people who don't know Jesus. So please, come hear our message, believe like us, and give up your Sunday mornings. 
for what is the question. I think in the midst of all of that truth, we've, some of us anyway, have embraced a reductionistic response, and that is what we say doesn't matter. And as we read Scripture, as we look at the life of Jesus, as we hear the instructions of the apostles, I don't know that that's tenable. Could it be that God expects us to live like Jesus and talk about him all at the same time? So my prayer is that through these messages, we'll be asking ourselves questions. Are we so full of the Spirit and the life of God? Are these rivers just teeming inside of us so that they must flow out, not just in the way we live, but in our ability to articulate why we live the way we live? How about this one? Who is my Nathaniel? As we talked about last week, from the story of Jesus calling Philip. He finds Philip, who then finds Nathanael. And what is this invitation? Come and see. Like Peter and John, are we willing to press through the inevitable resistance that comes when we start speaking in the name of Jesus? Jonah is the Old Testament text for today. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament, for sure. One of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It's a great text for epiphany. It is fascinating. It is provocative. Even beyond the whale, it is a provocative book. Was there really a whale? Was it a big fish? Was it really three days? We're not going there. Jonah, if you think about it, has echoes of the text we heard this morning, right? In the text we heard read this morning, it is the call of Simon and Andrew. It is the call of James and John. What an amazing contrast to the call of Jonah. In both stories, God initiates a mission. In both stories, God comes to his people and calls them into action. Of course, Jonah famously does not respond like the apostles. He does not respond with a yes. He's not ready to do what God asks him to do. He's looking to do something very different than that. But what I love about the story of Jonah, for those of you who are not familiar with anything other than the fish aspect of it, Jonah is assigned to go to a large city called Nineveh, a Gentile city, and announce a call to repentance. He doesn't want to do this. And what's amazing about Jonah is in his disobedience, he ends up on a ship and ends up in a storm. If you read the story closely, all of the Gentile sailors end up believing in God. And of course, Jonah ends up going to Nineveh and begrudgingly says, repent or God's going to get you. That's his message. And everybody repents. Jonah's amazing because just either not doing what he's supposed to do or doing what he is, but with a bad attitude, he's successful. <laughs> Jonah can't help but lead people to God. It's just an absolutely fascinating story. And I think there's some... Uh, 
insight here. There's something that can be very, very helpful for us. I will say, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Jonah. And um, our text is chapter 3. And don't get nervous. It's 10 verses. It's very brief. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can we stop there and say, I'm glad when I'm a jerk. I'm glad when I'm stubborn. I'm glad when I don't exactly do it the way God said to do it. He comes back a second time and says, let's try this again. Is there anybody glad for second chances? Would you wave a hand if you're glad for a second chance? If you didn't wave a hand, you're not getting any more second chances in your life. So here's a second chance. Is anybody glad for a second? No, okay. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Not what you want to say, what I tell you to say. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out. I want you to imagine this now. Not, hi, my name is Jonah. Not, God loves you, and he's got a plan for your life. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Off to the next stop. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is anybody feeling inspired by his sermon? And the people of Nineveh believed God. I I want a Jonah anointing. I want to get up. I think you all want me to have a Jonah anointing because that sermon's about 25 seconds long. And everybody's like, yep, we're on. We're good. Okay, let's go have lunch. It's amazing. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They're serious. They're acting now. And everyone, great and small, this is beautiful, put on sackcloth, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And this is where I I love just the quirkiness of the book. He, He had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal or herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered in sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. Man, if I am a cow, I'm like, really? Like, I did not do anything to deserve this. No water, no food, and I've got this uncomfortable stuff on me. This is a, I mean, if you think, this is crazy, if you think about this story. If we can't laugh over this story, we need to repent now because something's just not right. And, and everybody, including cows, you will turn from your evil ways, it says. And you will turn from the violence that is in your hands. And I love verse 9. Can I just stop before we read this and say, wouldn't it be great if our witness spurred a sense of positive possibility in the ears of people who heard it? Wouldn't it be great if when we speak the words of God to people who are walking in darkness, they responded like, this is such a beautiful response. Verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, 
God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What an odd story. If you're reading it closely, listening closely, your mind is probably going in 17 different directions right now. So many questions come from this story. What is God holding Ninevites accountable to? They don't have the law. They don't have a Bible. What is this evil that is so punishable? Remember Paul says in his writing that apart from the law, there's no sin? Okay, so there's that you can take home today. That's messy, right? That's, ew, I don't like that much. (laughs) What is life supposed to look like on the other side of this sermon and altar call? Like suddenly, are they going to be offering sacrifices to God? Are they going to be memorizing the book of Genesis that they don't have and it was not given to them and they're not allowed to participate in? What is this repentance going to look like in real life? And again, what's with the animals? I'm going to say this. Chris Green and I were talking this morning. Chris comes up in every sermon. And today I'm not going to make fun of Chris or expose my jealousy of Chris. What I'm going to do is just say that Chris and I have agreed that the book of Jonah has the best final verse of any book in the Bible. It's the best verse to ever end a book. Verse 11 of chapter 4, God says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. (laughs) We're done. Again with the animals. This is unbelievable. I love the book of Jonah. It raises pointed insights. First of all, notice with me that Jonah's message is vague. Do they know who God is who's bringing this disaster? Do they know how to repent? Clearly they do, but he doesn't tell them what to do. His message is condescending on some level because he does not care about these people. He's doing this begrudgingly, and yet there's tremendous response. Every preacher in America is so jealous of Jonah today. People who sincerely care about their congregations and try, 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 and they're, "Eh, it's all right. You know, on Sunday afternoon, Danielle, how'd I do? Oh, it was okay. It was all right. <laughs> but notice this. Notice this. Notice, I love this. The people don't believe Jonah. They believe God. Listen to the way the story plays out. He cries out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be no more. And verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. This is so beautiful. What this tells me is there's the possibility when I'm vague, when I'm condescending and have a bad attitude, if I'll just obey, God will get through me. I was looking for an amen there. I'm sorry. I'll try this side of the room. When I'm not doing it 100% right, Jonah's going around. He didn't go all the way through. He just goes a day in. He says, I can't walk anymore. This is enough walking. You know what? 40 days, y'all are going to get it. And you know what? They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. Could it be that with all of our shortcomings, with all of our carnality, with all of our mistakes, not that any of those things are justified. I'm not saying that. But could it be that people could hear God through us 
in spite of us. I love this because we have the life, the very spirit of Jesus inside of us. In other words, we have a better message. Our message is not 40 days and Tulsa will be overthrown. And everybody said, thank God. We have a message of abundant life. We have a message of hope. We have a message of meaning and purpose. We have a message that gives people a hope and a future. This is what we have in our mouths. If Jonah can be successful with that one, how much more successful could we be? How much more effective? How much more could we connect if we really had the heart of Jesus and the gospel in our mouths? And if the great change, if the great blessing that could come through Jonah took place, how could our workplace, how could our neighborhood, how could our school, how could our community be different with the announcement of the gospel of Jesus? Clearly, there's a theological problem in chapter 3 and verse 10 because it says here in this translation, God changed his mind. And every theologian, every philosopher says, oh, we have a problem here. And this is a deep and a complex subject, but it's our text this morning, and we can't run away from the fact that it says God changed his mind. This situation can't be resolved this morning. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable. I can simply say everybody's divided over what these sorts of things mean. In other words, is the future fixed? If not, how can God be all-knowing? How can God be all-powerful? How can God be good? And maybe the point this morning is not to resolve those sorts of huge questions as much as to let those questions work on us. What we know in this story is that God has initiated a rescue plan. We know that God has seen, it says at the very beginning of this book, go to Nineveh. God is paying attention to Nineveh, and God has come up with a solution to rescue Nineveh. Let's start there, that God is attentive, and his desire is to rescue humans from themselves. That I find great hope and great confidence in. And here's what else we know. God worked through a cantankerous, condescending Jonah to do something in the hearts of Ninevites that couldn't be accomplished by anything other than grace. I mean, you heard the sermon. I've delivered his sermon about four times now in this sermon. And it is not an impressive sermon. Right? 40 days and it's over. That's the sermon. And an entire nation, a group, a city that is a caste system of people who are high and powerful and people who are low and marginalized, and never shall the two meet. They meet in Jonah's sermon. And whether you were a slave, a laborer, or you were a nobleman, whether you were apparently a cow or a sheep, Your life was changed, and it has to be grace. It has to be God acting because the sermon didn't do it. It's akin to what Ezekiel says in his 36th chapter. 
prophesying, verse 26, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what's happening in Nineveh. They're not getting great preaching. They're getting God. They're not getting persuasive oratory. They're getting divine intervention. And this is not a last-minute action on God's part. God doesn't suddenly see a headline about Nineveh and go, oh, man, I got to do something. It's in the heart of God to rescue people. Look at the fourth chapter. This is maybe the most... No, verse 11 is the most comical one. Verse 2 is second most comical. Jonah prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I knew you were going to help these people. And that's why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. I knew. He's saying this angry. He's angry. Listen, we would say this in praise. He says it in anger. I knew you're a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You're ready to relent from punishing. He's not happy about anything he just said. You see, you understand this is the best book in the Bible. He's not happy about any of these things. And what does Jonah tell us? This is what God does. This is who God is. And that 11th verse that ends on such a funny, comical, quizzical note, it ends on a question mark. But the question in verse 11, the last thing God says to Jonah is simply, Jonah, can I have permission to be me? You've rightly said that I'm slow to anger. You've rightly said I'm abounding in loving kindness. You've rightly said all of these good things about me. Can I be me? Maybe in all of this story, when God changes his mind, it's not that God was lacking information. Maybe it's that God is acting relationally and dynamically with people. When God says in that 11th verse, should I not be concerned? He's saying, am I allowed to grieve over people? It's a Hebrew word there that speaks to feeling deep pain. I don't like the translation because it kind of means like you're concerned. You know, I'm concerned that a hangnail might get infected. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, am I allowed to grieve? And if we read the story of Jonah fully, we notice that Jonah has just lost a plant. A plant that God sent him has died. And in verse 10, God says, you're grieving about a bush. Am I allowed to grieve over people? Israel's prophets are radical because they introduce us to a God who feels and is affected by humans. We have to remember that in the ancient world, gods didn't feel anything about us. They didn't care anything about us. They were not concerned about us. They were not interested in rescuing us. 
We simply try to appease them. The prophets of Israel introduce us to a God who weeps, introduces us to a God who can be hurt and wounded. In the message translation, they phrase it this way. If you can change the way you feel about a plant, why can't I change the way I feel about Nineveh? God is contrasting his grief with Jonah's grief. And this is where we can all get a little bit uncomfortable together. Do we share God's grief this morning? We've maybe heard it asked this way. Do the things that break God's heart break ours? God's paying attention to the world. Are we paying attention to the same world? And if we are, are we having the same feelings? Part of our prayer life is, God, unite my heart. Unite my heart with your heart. The flip side of that question is to say, do we share God's hope? I think of how many times I have not lived as a faithful witness. And I can say there are at least two reasons I haven't done it. It's not so much that I'm a fearful person. It's that I'm a preoccupied person. I'm very much interested in what I have to do and what I need to get done. So much so that it's very difficult to be grieved over things or sensitive to things that God would be sensitive because Mark is too caught up in Mark and what Mark has to get done. And then I think the second reason is, if I, if I, I don't, don't want to say this, but I'm going to, I just don't know to what extent I have the hope that it would make a difference. And it seems like God could look at a guy like Jonah and have hope that if this guy, who's going to slander me, say everything that's good about me in a bad attitude, if this guy would just go to Nineveh, I could do great things. If this guy would just go to Nineveh, that whole city's going to turn around. God is irrepressibly hopeful. And hope is at the heart of Jesus' call in the Gospels to Peter and to Andrew, to James and John. I love the ESV translation of that gospel text. The English Standard Version, it gets it much closer to the Greek. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you, it doesn't say fishers of men, I will make you become fishers of men. See, what Jesus is inviting the disciples to is fellowship and relationship that will transform them into something. He's saying, you all are really good at fishing for fish. If you spend time with me, you will learn the rhythms and the skills and the perspectives you need to fish for men and for women. You see, rabbis in Jesus' day did not invite people to follow them. Students would find rabbis they liked and would ask if they could follow the rabbi. This 
is the reverse of all of that. And I have to think Jesus looks at these four guys and in hope and in desire, he invites them radically to follow him. And what's interesting is that invitation is focused on Jesus. Follow me. Another radical idea, because all the rabbis of the day, you wouldn't follow them because of them. You would follow them because of Torah. Jesus becomes the central focus point of the invitation. And it's a powerful metaphor. I love to fish. And the way that I fish and the way these guys fish are very different. So I'm using rods and reels and lures and all of that. And these guys are using weighted nets with rocks and metal hanging off of them and they're circular nets that they're very practiced at throwing. And what you'll notice in the gospel text in Mark is that apparently Simon and Andrew are a little bit less proficient than, or maybe, than James and John because Simon and Andrew are standing in the water throwing nets. James and John are in their father's boats throwing nets. And what would happen is that net would sink to the bottom Whatever fish were there would get trapped under that net. But in order to be a good fisherman, what you would have to do is you'd have to be experienced and trained in diving because your job is to dive down to the net and retrieve the net at the bottom of the sea. Could it be that our task as fishers of men and women is to enter into the sea? The place of instability, the place of fear, the place of darkness, the place where we were just talking about this recently. A lot of people, have you ever swam in a natural body of water in the dark and wondered what was touching your foot? Has anybody had this experience? Okay. There's all the schkant on the bottom of the water that gets in between your toes and it's disturbing. It's unsettling. So when Jesus says fishers of men, we should not be thinking a beautiful Loomis rod with the perfect Iowa reel sitting in a bass boat just casting in the sun leisurely. We should think diving into the murky water and having the bravery and the skill necessary to meet people where they are. See, the thing is, when I'm fishing, I never leave my element. Let me say that again. When the way that I fish, I fish out in oxygen. That's where I fish. I fish on stable ground. That's where I fish. These guys would go into the element of the fish to get the fish. See the difference? And that's why we have to follow Jesus in order to become that. And so just think as we close today of this juxtaposition this calling of the disciples and the calling of Jonah. I think a lot of us tend to be a little bit more like Jonah than the disciples. See, because uh, I, I'm not saying it to say that we avoid God's call, because that's not what Jonah did. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant. Very popular title, as you could imagine. Under the Unpredictable Plant. And it's a book about Jonah. 
And Peterson brings out a point that is going to make all of us gasp or be angry or I don't know. He says this. He says, Jonah does not flee to Tarshish in disobedience. He flees to Tarshish in an attempt to be obedient on his own terms. Jonah doesn't tell God no. He says, okay, I'll go, but I'll go to the place I want to go. Jonah does not shut God down and just resume business as usual. Jonah spends his own money and invests his own time and takes his own risks in an attempt to obey God, but not exactly the way God said to do it. And this is what hurts. This is what cuts too close to too many of us is that we don't want to say no to God, but we want to say yes with an asterisk. There's an inclination in us to think that if we're doing something, that we're being obedient, and the two are not the same. Activity and obedience are not necessarily the same thing. Unlike Jonah, the disciples were called into fellowship, and within that transformative nature of fellowship, They could become the sorts of humans, become the sorts of men who could join Jesus in his rescue because, friends, Jonah is not pointing to disciples. Jonah is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Jonah because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who descended not into the sea because the the, the ship was sinking. Paul says he descended into the lower parts of the earth to rescue those of us who were lost. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who doesn't weep over a dead plant. He weeps over a city that doesn't know the time of its visitation. Friends, we don't have to, this is not a sermon to say, be a better Jonah. This is a sermon to say, the better Jonah has come. And he has invited us to follow him to the point that in spending time with him and following him, we'll be transformed and become the sorts of men and women who could do what Jonah could not do. Love people that aren't like us. Love people that we've written off. Share good news with the hope that men and women will believe. Stanley Hauerwas, a contemporary theologian, he has this quote where he says, the church has missionary power in direct proportion to its liturgical integrity. A lot of big words there, a lot of $10 words going on in that quote. Let me put it to you this way. What is liturgical integrity? Well, there's a lot of ways to describe it, but one way to talk about it is worshiping in unity. You remember Jesus saying, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. 
Could it be that maybe our message, our missionary message is not effective because the church is so divided? The church is so prone to spats and factions and divisions. Certainly that must be part of what liturgical integrity means. Martin Luther King, who we honored this past week, is famous for saying that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week in our country. Certainly, this must somehow relate to liturgical integrity when the only people we worship with look like us, think like us, and live like us. Liturgical integrity certainly must mean the ways in which we come to the table of the Lord. This meal that we're about to celebrate has so beautifully been referred to as being for the life of the world. The prayers that we pray, pray that those of us who have received Christ's body will be his presence in the earth. That's the end game of this meal. It's not for us to say, oh, it was so precious. What a sweet presence of Jesus in that room. No, what a sweet presence of Jesus in your break room at work tomorrow because we were at this table Surely, liturgical integrity includes the unique expression of God's presence in our praise and in our prayers. See, God is determined to be among us, friends. He is determined to find a way to dwell with us and to be with us, but to be with us in ways that change us, that affect us. If I could end this series of three sermons, I would want to say, that God's people have an irrepressible witness because we have an irrepressible God. His goodness and mercy follow us every day of our lives. His grace superabounds in the midst of our sin. His peace refuses to be limited by our understanding. And certainly, he refuses to let even death Have the last word in your life. Friends, you worship and serve a God who cannot be stopped. He cannot be held back. His love is greater. His grace is greater. His faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning in our God. He is relentless in his pursuit of us. He leaves the 99 to find the one. This is who God is. He'll send a Jonah. If that's what he's got, he'll send him and he'll use him. How much more should we walk out of this place? And not just today. I'm not, I'm not trying to hype up this moment or this day as much as to get us thinking. If that's how God is, how do we reveal that to the earth? How do we reveal that to our friends, to our families, and to the people around us? Let's bow our heads What we do in this room is not nearly as important as what God does in this room. When we gather, God is active in the most meaningful ways. We're responding to the drawing of God. That's why we're here. God is working even now every week in times when we sense it and in times when we don't sense it, God is working. 
And I have to believe, I have to hope that there are some people who have heard either today's message or you've heard the three sermons. And the simple prayer is, God, I want to have this sort of irrepressible spirit inside of me. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be a finger-pointing, accusatory person. But I want to be the sort of person who cannot keep from speaking about what I've seen and about what I've heard. At this moment, if, if I, I would just like to pray for you. And if your prayer is that 2018, there'd be this shift in who you are, this shift in your perspective, this shift in your joy, this shift that you'd be bursting with the life of God. Would you just raise a hand, and I just want to pray for you. Nobody's going to move or embarrass you, but I just want to pray for you. If you just lift up that hand, my hand's up because I need this as much as anybody. Father, you see our hands this morning, and we acknowledge your spirit is doing a work in our hearts. And I pray that you'd have mercy on us. Pour out your grace on us this morning. That sanctuary would be full of your life, full of your joy. And that we would present you to the world in ways that bring them hope. That you're for them. You are here to rescue them. We have great confidence in you, your grace, your power. And to that end, we ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.